invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the first chapter of John. We're going to finish this great chapter, and I just want you to know that I was watching, and some of you Baptists were tapping with both feet, which constitutes dancing. I just want you to know that, okay? John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, it, uh, it's two separate episodes that have the same paradigm, the same outline, and it's all about what discipleship really is. Uh, several years ago when we got together here at Grace and decided that we wanted to answer the question, why do we exist as a church, we came up with a mission statement that says, we exist to make and multiply Christ followers who magnify the glory of God. And we came up with that term, Christ followers, simply because the, the word Christian, which is a really good word, okay, it's, it's in Acts, the first place that followers of Christ were called Christians was in Antioch. And so it, historically, it's been the word that describes us. But what we found here in the West, especially, that the word Christian had become a label. And it was very easy for all kinds of people to carry that label without having a life that backed it up. And so we thought, rather than use the word Christian, uh, let's use another biblical concept that is more than a label, it's a lifestyle, at least that's what we think, a Christ follower. Jesus said in Luke 9, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? And follow. Well, John, in the book of John, as we'll see in the gospel of John, makes uh, a lot of use of this word follow. And he, he terms it in, in, in terms of what discipleship really is. Now, I, you know, I grew up in a pastor's family. And so I was always hearing about disciples and discipleship. And if we're not careful, you've heard it too, a lot around here. We have discipleship groups, right? And everybody needs to be discipled. And yet, if we're not careful, we can come to think of it as kind of second-level Christianity. That you know, wrongly, we assume, okay, I can, I can kind of get into the family through faith, and I believe, and I, I, you know, that's about it. I, I'm a follower of Christ. I just don't follow real closely, okay? Well, I want you to understand that the Bible's very clear. Jesus only has disciples. He doesn't have different levels. He has disciples who are earnest and sincere and, and disciples who are not, uh, back in 1977, I was about ready to get married, and I was about to get married not having a job. Now, I would never have allowed my son to get married without a job. No money, no honey. That was our rule. <laughs> but I couldn't find a job, and our, our date of our wedding came closer and closer, and finally, two weeks before we were married, I got a job. Uh, I had gone around all kinds of places in Tacoma, Washington, and there was this old hardware store. It was half a block long. It was called Coast House Materials. It had started during the Depression. It was family-owned for three generations. And during the Depression, when houses were being torn down, uh, this family had gone and had salvaged old hinges and door pulls and window sash and doors, all kinds of things. So we became known around Western Washington as the place, if you're restoring a house, you need to go to Coast House Materials and wander around their upstairs and their basement, and maybe you'll find just the right thing that you needed. Now, we, all, we had all the other modern stuff, too, all the tools and the paint and everything else, but uh, mostly we were a dusty old kind of archive of hardware. Now, 
Tony McHugh hired me. He was a, a staunch Roman Catholic, very good man. And I think he hired me because he thought hiring a seminarian, I was in seminary, would somehow leverage God to bless his building. I don't know. <laughs> but he also hired me knowing I knew almost nothing about the business. Uh, I had a, a screwdriver and a pliers at home. They were both correctly labeled. Okay? <laughs> and so, but he gave me a job. And I decided that I wanted to, man, I, I want to make sure that he doesn't regret it. He jumped in at the, that the last hour enabled us to get married, to actually have a honeymoon, to be able to pay the rent. We were going to live on love, but money was, you know, necessary as well. I want to use that as an illustration of what discipleship is. You know, if you think about it spiritually, you were living a life that was full of futility. You, didn't, you might even not have known it. But Jesus Christ reached out and rescued you. And too often we say, wow, he, he did this for me. So now I'm on the bus to heaven. Good enough. It'd be like if I got this job and then said, I really don't want to learn about marine enamel and oil-based versus water-based paint. Or how to, you know, how to thread pipe, which I learned to do. Or how to replace the window in a sash and, and with all the points and all the other stuff. I learned all that. How wrong would it have been for me to say, yeah, Tony, you gave me this job, thanks. I, I, I'll take the paycheck, but I'm really not going to invest. Of course, that's ludicrous, isn't it? And it wasn't that I had to make myself do it. I wanted, out of appreciation, to get to know the hardware business. I wanted to understand the, the different kind of drill bits and the different kind of saw blades and, and all those kinds of things that went into knowing about lumber. I wanted to. Why? Because the more I got into it, the more fascinating it was. And I also found that I could do a better job helping customers. I went to work. Yeah, I got paid. But I found out that, guess what? There's something neat about work and about helping people. So I just want to ask you this morning as I preach through this text to keep that illustration in mind and ask yourself, where are you? Are you one of those followers of Christ who kind of follows, you know, kind of on autopilot? You've been doing it for a long time, but you really don't know the Bible. And you might, if someone asked you to defend the Trinity, you might go, oh. So I just, I'm not trying to pull your guilt chain much. But I want us to walk along two episodes in John 1, and what we see is that Jesus Christ calls us to follow Him, to obey Him, to gain a foundation of confession that means we've learned something about Him, and then the ultimate is that He wants us to be witnesses for Him. He wants us to be kind of billboards, advertisements, our life are advertising the glories of Jesus Christ. So follow along with me as I start in verse 35. And the, the first episode we see kind of is a passing of the baton from John the author's point of view. He's been talking a lot about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist heard the call of God in his life, and he followed that call. He went out into the desert and preached. And finally, in verse 34, we see his confession. This is the culmination of everything he's learned about Jesus. He said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. But there's one more thing. After we hear and follow, which we'll see, and we come to a, an agreement, a confession of that which is true about Jesus, then we're to witness to it publicly. 
And we see that in verse 35. The next day again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Now, what we learn here is that, you know, John had gained quite a following. After all, he was uh, the last Old Testament prophet, and he was out in the the Judean wilderness, and he was calling people to come to him, and he was saying, Messiah's coming, he's already here, and if you want him to enter into your life, you're going to have to clean up the driveway. (laughs) You're going to have to prepare the way of the Lord, and that means to turn away from your sin, to acknowledge it, to realize that you need a Savior because of your sin, to repent of it, and go under the waters of baptism, which says, I'm no longer living for self. I'm now living a cleansed life in preparation for Messiah. So he had a number of people who were following him, and two of them were standing with him in verse 35, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. There it is, a witness. Now you understand that John, is, John the author is, is really condensing these episodes. But what he wants us to see is the bottom line principle that John came to know who Jesus was, told others about it, and now they are what? They're hearing and they're following. These two disciples, verse 37, unnamed at this point, two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now what does follow mean? Well, what we're going to find in the book of John, John's gospel, is that it kind of grows in its progression. You know, the first place it's used here, it just means, well, it's like if you're walking around the block and a dog starts to follow you. It's just that simple going in the same direction as somebody else. But by verse 43, we'll find that to follow Jesus actually means to align your life with his. Okay, to be a disciple, a learner, to be a student who wants to learn and and imitate his master. By the time we get to chapter 12, it's very obvious that to follow means to obey. This idea of following Jesus, the the first step of discipleship is to get in line behind him, but discipleship is meant not only to get the job, right, in the hardware store, but to work hard to become proficient, out of love for the one who gave us the job, if I can mix my illustrations here. You want to learn everything you can so that you can be a tremendous catalyst in someone else's life. You know, as I'm sure you're aware, the West, us, we are consumer-driven, aren't we? Unfortunately, it's become, I think it's become a problem in, our, in the church. Not ours, of course. Ours is perfect, but in the church. Where people come to Christ, and they come because they're going to get stuff, whether it's help with their parenting or their marriage, all of which are fine. But imagine if, if I got that job in the hardware store and I said, well, thanks for the job, Tony. I get money, right? I get days off. Um, yeah, I get this, I get that. I get 30% off power tools. That was cool. And Tony would look at me and he'd say, wait a minute, I, I didn't hire you so you could get stuff. I hired you so you could help our customers. You see, we become too consumer-driven when we should be catalyst-oriented. What do I mean by that? In Hebrews, it says that we are to encourage one another to what? To love and good deeds. Do you realize that as a Christ follower, we have the privilege 
of being a catalyst in someone else's life. That's the opposite of having a consumer mindset with regard to Christianity, with regard to Jesus, with regard to the church. And I know we're not going to overcome it in one sermon, but I think we all have to look deep inside ourselves and say, why did God save me? Did he save me for me or did he save me for him? We just sang about it, didn't we? Take my life, it is what? Not mine. Through it, Lord, may your glory shine. Do you remember singing that? And you sang it, I sang it, and it was so beautiful and it was so wonderful, and now the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. Do we mean it? Do we mean it? Well, we find out that these two, they followed. Look what happens in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? This is important. Uh, We don't do this much. When people come and they say, look, we want to be part of who you are, we say, great. But Jesus turns around because he realized that there were many in his day who were looking for a Messiah who was a political liberator, who was going to come and fulfill their agenda of what they thought Messiah would be, very similar to today. And Jesus looks at him and says, what are you after? Why are you following me? What are you expecting to get? What are your expectations? Maybe we should do a better job of asking that. And notice they're, uh, they're used to this give and take because they don't answer the question. In fact, they answer the question with a question. And they said to him, Rabbi, and just as a textual note, John, who's writing in 90 A.D., realizes that the word rabbi by that time had come to be a position uh, that was technical. He translates it for his Greek-speaking readers, and he says, well, that really back then was just teacher. And so they said, teacher, where are you staying? See, they didn't answer the question, but in a sense, what they did was they, they asked for an audience. They'd heard from John the Baptist over time that Messiah's coming, This is what he's going to do. This is how we'll know it's him. I saw the Spirit remain on him, and oh, there he is. And so these two start following him, and Jesus says, why are you following me, basically? What is your expectation? What are you hoping to gain from this? And they actually say, we need time with you. We need an audience. And so where are you staying? Can we get together? And look what Jesus says in verse 39. He says to them, come and you will see. Uh, in studying the Gospel of John, as I have, I've come to realize that John uses some things at the beginning, phrases and words like seek and follow and come and see. And when he uses them later on, he expects us to realize that he already was saying more than it appeared back here. When come and you will see has the idea, perhaps, here's Jesus who's going to go on and open blind eyes so they can see. And he's saying, I've asked you what you're seeking. You're following me. They say back to him, we, we want some time with you. And in essence, I think Jesus might be saying, well, come, and I'll open your eyes. And that's exactly what happened. He said to them, come, and you will see. You will see what you're finding. You will see what you're seeking. So they came, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, which was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm super jealous of these guys. You know, you're, you're, I don't know, having lunch, and 
Jerusalem and Jesus walks by and your boss, your mentor says, there he is. And so you follow him and he turns around and says, what do you guys want? And you say, well, can we have a cup of coffee? And he invites you into your house, into his house. And you get to spend the afternoon and the evening with Jesus. See, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a dream. Now, we don't know what they talked about. Nobody took notes. Nobody posted it. We don't know, but we know the outcome. Verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. Now, poor Andrew. Look what it says about him. He was who? He was Simon Peter's brother. Right. Remember, this is written late. And so while John, the author, is writing, Peter would have been well-known, Andrew not so much. We actually named our, our son Andrew because, as it turns out, he's the first one in the Bible to bring somebody to Jesus. But I know what it's like. I have an older brother named Tim who's uh, almost six years older than I am, and he was all-conference in football in high school. Uh, he won the National Trumpet Contest and got four years of college paid for. He plays every instrument known to man. Uh, he speaks Hebrew fluently. He knows Aramaic and Ugaritic and Sanskrit and Greek and who knows what else. And whenever he walks in the room, he's the smartest guy in the room. And when I was in junior high and high school, guess who I was? You're Tim Hanks' brother. Yeah, that's why he's never preaching here. Poor Andrew, he's Simon Peter's brother, but look what he does. He says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, and here's his confession. Please understand the, the process here. He had heard about Messiah from John the Baptist. When John points him out, he follows. That's the first step in discipleship. But somehow in that number of hours with Jesus, uh, we don't know exactly how he did it, but he came to understand that all that the Old Testament said Messiah would be and do, Jesus was fulfilling. And so now he has a confession. First we hear, then we follow, but in our following we dig in, we learn, we, we lay hold of some foundational principles about who God is and what the Trinity is and what sin is and what sanctification is and what confession is and what happened at the cross and what it means to be sanctified, and what prayer does, and all of these things. And he, he gets a confession, something he sticks to. You know, a confession is a, is a grouping of ethical convictions that we hold to no matter the circumstance. You know, they say if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. It's happening way too much in evangelicalism today. It's because we're not deep enough in our discipling in our discipleship. So this was his confession. We have found the Messiah, which again Peter has to translate, or John has to translate for his Greek readers. Messiah is an Old Testament word. Christ is the New Testament word. They mean the same thing, the anointed one. It was used of the kings in Israel. It was used of prophets. It was the anointed one. It was meant to mean the promised one. That's his confession. But then what does he do? He doesn't just say, I've learned, I've gotten the job now at the, at the hardware store and I've learned some things. He says, no, I, I'm not there just to serve myself. Now I, I go from being just being someone who knows to someone 
who broadcasts, someone who witnesses. He brought him to Jesus. Isn't that great? I don't want to make too much of that. Well, yeah, I do. He brought him to Jesus. That's our privilege as well. And Jesus looked at him, and here's the sting in the tail. Each one of these episodes has kind of a, a weird thing at the end. And Jesus looks at him, that is Simon, and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, Kephas. It's actually an Aramaic word, Kepha, and they put an S on it to make it more Greek-sounding. We call it Cephas usually, but it's really Kephas, and it means bedrock, massive stone. But again, John has to translate it for his Greek speakers, and he picks the word Petra, Petros, Peter, which also means rock, uh, not necessarily as big, but bigger than a stone. But I want you to notice here that it's a future thing. You shall be called. We don't know a whole lot about it at this point in the text about the name change. It seems that the name change speaks of the future. It's not so much a mere name change as a declaration of what Jesus is going to make out of Simon. And it probably refers to the fact that when we get to the book of Acts, there are two men who spearhead the gospel, Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to who? The Jews, right? You're going to be part of the bedrock foundation of this thing called the church. Exactly what the name change signifies, we don't know here. But what we'd see from this is that Jesus has said, I am going to make you something. I think there's a great discipleship principle here because when we talk about discipleship, even if we use my illustration of going and getting hired in a hardware store about which you know very little, that's, that's very similar to those of us who come to espouse Christ, to follow him, to, to trust him savingly and give him our life. We, we start off with not knowing a whole lot. And depending on what our lives were like, we come to realize there has to be some significant change, some, some additional discipline, some laying aside of some things that we know don't bring joy to the heart of God. And that's hard. It's really hard. It's scary. And then you throw in the idea that we're supposed to be a, a billboard about Jesus, and we start thinking, man, what if somebody asks me questions? And, well, here's the principle I think we learned from Peter's name change. What God expects of us, he is faithful to enable in us as we diligently serve him. What he calls us to, he will enable us to do as we diligently pursue him. How do I know that? Well, I was, I was in a Q&A here this last week here at church, and one of the questions was, how do I know that God is working in me? How do I know the Holy Spirit is working in me? I don't know if you've asked that, but I have. And I, I have found the answer in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which is Paul's kind of mission statement. 28 is kind of the mission statement of his missionary enterprise. He says, him we proclaim, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what is the mission statement of your, of your global missions outreach team? He said, well, 
Uh, we're going to teach and warn. We're going to preach Christ for this purpose, that we can bring people to maturity in Christ. And then if you were to ask, but personally, Paul, what's your personal mission statement? It's the next verse. For this I toil. Now, that's a sweat word, isn't it? I toil, struggling, and get this, with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. That seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? Which is it, Paul? How do you know that God's power is powerfully working in you? He answers, when I am toiling and struggling to pursue and obey Christ. How do I know the Spirit's working in me? When I'm working. How do I know the Spirit of God is helping me run the race when I am running the race that's set before me with perseverance? Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. He talks to the Philippians in verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work to get it, but if you've already got the job at the hardware store, work it out, get to know what you're supposed to be doing more and more out of fear that you might disappoint the one who gave you this great job. And trembling because every day you go in and you realize, I don't think I'm, I'm good enough for this. I'm unworthy. That's what God wants. We're going to work out our salvation with fear that we would disappoint the one who has given us life. All the while trembling, lest we begin to think, I got this handled. And the verse goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work where? In you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So Paul's got this thing nailed. In Colossians 1 and in Philippians 2, he says, here's the deal. Run. Work. Be diligent. Be disciplined. Love Christ, but desire to love him more. Obey Christ, but desire to obey him more. Know him, but desire to know him in a deeper, fuller way. And as you are struggling and striving and running and working, guess what? You will find out that his power is what's working in you. So what God asks of us in discipleship, he is willing and able and wanting to enable in us as we pursue him with all that we have. Well, that moves us to the second episode. You still with me? I'm having fun this weekend. I just got to tell you, I love the book of John. I love because it talks about real people in real situations, facing real objections and overcoming them through Christ. And it also paints the picture that following Christ is not a bed of roses. It's not that there's no opposition, there's no struggle, there's no trial. Oh, there's lots of those. But in John, we come to realize that God teaches us and reaches us through things that are hard in ways that he couldn't do if everything was easy. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So he goes north, and apparently the best place to kind of enter into the region of Galilee he wanted to be in was this city called Bethsaida, which is at the northeast kind of corner of the Sea of Galilee. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Peter and said to him, follow me. Now, again, John the author is condensing everything because the way it's written, Jesus is walking along. Philip is over here. You know, he's sitting at a cafe having his lunch, and Jesus just walks and says, follow me, and he does. But what we know from the previous episode is that the same paradigm is at work. That somehow Philip heard and he was ready. Well, 
The next verse tells us perhaps how he heard. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So John wants us to know that as John the Baptist had disciples and had talked about the fact that Messiah is coming and I know who it is, it's Jesus because I saw the spirit land and remain on him, remember that? So Philip somehow understands that. So as Jesus comes by, he recognizes them, he puts together what he's heard, and when invited to follow, he follows. Now he spent time with Jesus, obviously, because as we'll see uh, a little while down, he comes to the place where he can confess that Jesus is the one who fulfills all that Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets in the other books of the Old Testament, all that they wrote, prophesied, predicted would be true of Messiah, Philip's time with Jesus convinces him. I have this audit list, he said, and he's checking box after box after box, and he comes to this conclusion. Look what it says in verse 45. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, here's his confession. We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So again, we see the same thing happening. He heard, he followed, and he came to understand a body of truth upon which he was going to build his life. And then he becomes a witness. He goes and finds Nathanael. Up till this point, it looks perfect. It's working out great. Being a witness for Christ is easy. And then we find the first objection. Okay, uh, that's one of the things we're afraid of, isn't it? You know, that person at work that you've been having coffee with because they're in the break room the same time you are, and you're getting to know them a little bit and what they do on the weekends, and you're starting to have conversations. They ask you what you do on the weekends, and you say, well, I, my family and I, we go to church. You go to church? Wow, what church? And you say, well, I go to Grace. You're a Baptist? And then they start peppering you with questions, right? And with objections. How can you believe the Bible? It's so old, it's gone through so many different printings, there's mistakes in it, everybody knows that. And you're sitting there just kind of going, oh man, what do I do? Well, what you can do is 1-800-POCKET-PASTOR, david.hague at gracebaptist.org. But in... <laughs> In the heat of the moment, look what Philip does. Nathanael said, verse 46, here's the big objection, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I remember when we moved here, we were looking for a house, and we were looking all over, looking basically at price, and I mentioned to some folks, yeah, we found a house in fill in the blank, and it's pretty cheap, and they said, oh, you, you don't want to live there right? When I was in Corona, we picked on Norco, which is North Corona. It's where people can have horses in their backyard. Yeah. It's the horse capital of the world. It's also the fly capital of the world. <laughs> so if you lived in Norco, you had to put up with the smell and derision, people picking on you all the time. So what happens in this time period is that the people down south around Jerusalem they looked at the Galileans as though they were hayseeds, and the Galileans looked down on the Nazarites, the Nazarenes from Nazareth. Plus, Nathaniel was smart enough to know that the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would come from where? Bethlehem, right? 
So he's asking kind of a prejudicial but not insignificant question. How in the world can you say that Messiah is coming from Nazareth? And what could Philip have done? At that point, he could have said, well, let me explain to you uh, that he was really born in Bethlehem, blah, 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 blah. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He says to him, the end of verse 46, come and see. Now, I want you to understand the brilliance here. If someone is, you're in a conversation with them, with you, with you and you, you ask, they ask you a question that you can't answer, say, you know what, I, I'll have to see, I'm, I'll have to look. But maybe at some point it's an opportunity to say, I'll tell you what, why don't we just, on Tuesdays for lunch, why don't we just get together and read the book of John together? And we'll see how the Bible answers your question. Just bring them to Jesus. Now, the nice thing that Philip could do, he actually brought Nathaniel to Jesus. We can bring him to God's Word. We can read the Bible with them. We can write down questions, and then we can research it. You can call me or email me, any of our pastors, or you can look it up yourself. It's called discipleship. It's called learning what marine enamel really is. So he brings him to Jesus, and Jesus, in verse 47, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. The word deceit there means that he's, he's not a manipulator. He's not looking to use some leverage in religion to get God to do what he wants. It's not that he's never told a lie. It's that Jesus looks at him and knows all about him and knows that this is not an opportunist. And he says that, and Nathaniel hears it. And immediately Nathaniel is on alert. He said, how do you know me? Verse 48. It's not, how do you know my name? How do you know I'm an Israelite? It's, how do you know there's no deceit in me? How do you know my nature? And Jesus says, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, at this point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite the ushers to be dismissed and to start to put together the Lord's Supper. We're gonna do something a little different. Because the end of this text I want to use as a transition into the Lord's Supper, there's a sting in the tail here that is super cool. Trust me. And Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, that's all true. But Jesus, very interesting, says, he kind of questions his faith. He questions the mechanism of his faith. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What Jesus is saying is that sometimes a supernatural event produces a kind of belief that may not be saving belief. We'll, we'll see that at the end of chapter two where Jesus, having done all these miracles, it says people at the Passover believed in him. It's the word for faith. And then it says, but he was not believing in their belief. Why? Because they wanted him to be a political liberator, a military champion. And they believed that the, the miracles he was doing set him up for that perfectly. So their faith in Christ or in, in Jesus was not faith in the Messiah as he truly was. So Jesus says, you know what? The basis of your faith right now isn't enough. You will see greater things than these. Guys, you can come down and 
begin to distribute the bread and the cup. You will see greater things than these. What? You will see, well, you'll see the glory of Christ. You'll hear it in his teaching. You'll see it in his miracles. You'll see it in his compassion. You'll see it in his death on the cross, and you'll see it in his glorious, what? Resurrection. And then Jesus, this sting in the tail again, there's something at the very end here that, is, that just seems weird. Look what he says in verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, if you grew up the King James, you would be familiar with verily, verily. This is some of the, the truly, truly statements that Jesus does. What is truly, truly? Well, it's, I remember when our oldest, Abby, was a little girl, three or four, and she'd do something wrong, and we wanted to correct her, and she wouldn't look at us. You remember that, mom and dad? And so I'd say to her, Abby, look at me. In fact, I'd grab her little cheeks, Abby, look at me. Focus on, that's what truly, truly means. Look at me. Focus. This is extremely important. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, when I read this, see if it brings back anything in your mind that uh, of some other text in Scripture. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Is that familiar? Yeah. It's from Genesis chapter 28. Remember the story of Jacob. Jacob having swindled the, the blessing out of his father through deceit. So he got the blessing, and now his brother Esau is after him, and so he's running away. He's heading to where his extended family lives, and halfway there, he stops at a place that he later calls Bethel, house of God, and he lays down on a rock, which as a kid, I could never figure that out. But the text tells us in Genesis 28, 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached into heaven, Jacob's ladder. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on, and the Hebrew grammar is best understood, on him, not it. The idea being that Jacob was being told by God, you are the, you are the conduit, you are the connection between heaven and earth. Because Jacob would go on to have 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, later, God changed Jacob's name to what? to Israel, that you as Israel are a, a symbol of God's messages, God's promises, God's truth to the world because God was going to act it all out through Israel. And since that time in, in Jesus' day, the Jews thought of Jacob as the one that had brought God's truth down. So what is Jesus saying? He says, Nathaniel, you think the fact that I saw you and know, knew what's in you is, is good? Let me tell you the scope here. You're going to see heaven opened. That is, the truth of God is going to be made available to man. And the angels, who are heavenly messengers, bringing the truth down, guess who the latter is? It's Jesus. Here's the discipleship principle there. All that heaven has for us is found where? In Jesus Christ. The messengers of God are now coming and going with heavenly truth through the person and the ministry of Jesus. 
He's the new and better Adam. We knew that. Romans 5 tells us that. But have you ever thought about the fact that he is the new and better Jacob? He is the leader of the true Israel, the Israel of God, the people of God who are where? Who are in Christ. So God reveals himself, Jesus says, not in a building, but now in a body, in God the Son incarnate. And we see for the first time Jesus' favorite self-identifying label, he says, through the Son of Man. That comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The whole purpose of our lives is to serve him. He's our Savior, he's our Lord, and we are, we are privileged to have it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word excites us. It hurts us, it cuts us apart, but it puts us back together. Lord, we thank you that we can follow you, that we can learn of you, that we can confess the truth about you, and that we can witness to that truth through the way we live our lives, through the words that we speak, through the conversations we have, through the gospel that we share. And Father, we thank you that we're not the only place in this valley where that's true. There are so many wonderful, strong, godly men and women in your churches. This weekend we pray especially for Hope Vineyard Community and Pastor Pete. Lord, he's a lovely man. He's a gracious man. He loves you and he loves people and he is a a light in this community and we thank you for him. And We ask, Lord, that you would keep he and his congregation uh, bound by your word, driven by your gospel, that you would uh, express to them great love and affection by blessing their work. And Lord, as they deepen their life message, may you broaden their influence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you now to eat and drink together as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ.